this is the Spa Retailer Podcast, where we talk retail, business, and all things related to the hot tip industry. I'm your host, Megan Kendrick, owner of Spa Retailer Magazine. So today on the Spa Retailer Podcast, I have Josh and Earl Michaels. They are a father and son team in Indiana. Are you in Terre Haute right now? Yes, Yes, we are. They are the guys who run Backyard Leisure with their main location in Terre Haute, and then they have two locations in Illinois. So thanks for coming on the podcast today, guys. Thank Thank you. you. So this is a rare occasion where I'm not sure I have ever interviewed either of you before or the magazine or the podcast or anything. So this is kind of exciting because I feel like I get a whole fresh story that even I haven't heard before. Awesome. Yeah, we're honored. You know, I always start off getting people's backgrounds. Where did you start out? How did you get into the industry? How did you end up working in this company together? I, I guess, Earl, you're probably the one to start with for that. All right. Well, how long do we have? I mean, the podcast can go on for, for hours and hours. So it's really, it's really depends on how chatty you're feeling. All right. So in 1998, my wife and I decided we wanted a gazebo in our backyard and I couldn't find anybody to build one or buy one from. So I actually got a lead from a little company in uh, Southern Indiana that makes them. They referred me to a dealer quite a distance away, and that particular dealer didn't want to deal with me from the distance. So I called the company back and they told me, well, the only way you can buy one is if you're a dealer. So I asked them what that took and they told me. So we bought two and I lived out in the country on a pretty well-traveled road. And uh, we put one in the backyard where we wanted it. And then we put one out front and I came up with the name Backyard Leisure and we opened a business account with a thousand dollars. We sold our first gazebo to an old farmer whose 85 year old wife had always wanted one. He came and bought it and took it home. He brought his tractor and his pickup truck and trailer and loaded it up because he didn't want to pay me to deliver it. So he took it home and uh, put a big red bow on it, I suppose, and gave it to his wife for Christmas. So that was our very sweet, actually. (laughs) It is. That was our very first sale. And then my career was in the insurance industry and I was still active in the insurance industry. So we started out very small. I put in a small display lot, brought in a couple of more gazebos and some outdoor furniture, and we sold some fairly successfully. I decided that I would go ahead and expand that a little bit. We rented some ground in the prime retail area of Terre Haute, Indiana. I put in gazebo displays there. I've got a big sign with an 800 toll-free number, and I started selling gazebos by appointment. One day we got a call from a spa manufacturer that's here in the Midwest, and they asked if we would consider selling hot tubs. I said, well, yeah, but we don't have any place to sell them. (laughs) So at that time, there was a little corner not too far away from where our gazebo display in Terre Haute was. We ended up renting that. It was a two-car garage and a small building that we used as an office and a small store where people could buy chemicals, very small. 
So we did that. I believe that was from 2003 until 2007. That's how we sold hot tubs. I can't imagine you knew what you're getting yourself into with hot tubs because gazebos and even patio furniture, you kind of, you sell it, you drop it off and that's the end of it. Hot tubs, as we all know, there's a lot more touch points between the dealer and consumer. That's right. We did have some inkling what we would need. We hired a young man to help with our deliveries and our service aspect of it. Then I also had an older gentleman that would man the office building and sell for us. We were fairly successful on a small level, you know, I mean, enough to where it didn't cause me to think, well, I need to stop doing this. So in 2006, we decided if we're going to do this, we need to actually find a place to do it. You know, you can't sell hot tubs out of a two-car garage forever. So we leased a 6,000-square-foot building that was actually just right next door to where we had been operating. We leased that, and we moved in there. After a year of being there under lease, we bought that property. And as time went by, of course, we expanded our offerings and so forth. And then, of course, in 2018, we had the fire. And then once that happened, we uh, ended up moving into the location that we are here. When you really decided to go full force into hot tubs, it was what, a year or two before the recession and before kind of hot tub sales plummeted, at least across the country. I mean, what was that like for you guys? I mean, you kind of had gone all in, got this 6,000 square foot showroom. and, And next thing you know, the whole country is in this economic depression. Right. That's actually kind of one of the things that we we think has helped us to be successful is that we we didn't really experience the glory days. We're told that, you know, back in the early 2000s that it was pretty easy to sell hot tubs. Well, at that time we were we were nothing really, you know. So, we were operating on a shoestring and, you know, by the time uh, everybody else was experiencing something of a crash, for us we were probably still actually growing a little bit because we were so new. You could consider it a difficult time to start, but it maybe was in the end a, a little better for us because we we didn't become accustomed to an easy experience with selling hot tubs. We were we were so new that it was just normal. <laughs> I have the same experience. I started this industry in 2008, and mm-hmm. so that's how I I felt about it too. It's I don't know any different in the hot tub industry. This is this is kind of <laughs> how it's always been for me. Yep. So you have that one location, the 6,000 square feet in Terre Haute, which do you want to know my, my one connection to Terre Haute, Indiana? Of course. The guy that I went to my senior prom with in Williston, North Dakota, he went to Rose Holman. Oh, wow. <laughs> that is my only connection to Terre Haute. The only reason anybody knows about Terre Haute is because somebody went to college here. And usually it's Larry Bird. Ben Broshot was also very tall. Uh, he was not the kind of basketball player that obviously that Larry Bird was. <laughs> so you have the one location and how do you get, how do you expand? What does that look like for you guys? Well, uh, basically we decided that I'm, I want to build a legacy. And in order to do that, you have to get bigger. And obviously, you know, when we had the fire that forced us to, we knew that we needed to have a a more square footage in Terre Haute and we were planning on rebuilding, but it simply became, we bought that property, uh, by the way, after a year of leasing it, we bought the property. So we owned it. So when the fire happened, of course, it was our 
responsibility to either rebuild or do something different. We ended up buying 33,000 square feet of a what used to be an H.H. Gregg appliance store, which for those of you that may not be familiar with H.H. Gregg, they were a 400 store chain that sold televisions and refrigerators and stoves and stuff like that. And they went bankrupt and this property was available and we decided to purchase it rather than rebuild. From an economic standpoint, it made more sense. We now have 33,000 square feet here in Terre Haute. And then our first expansion was Springfield, Illinois. And it was the very first second store experience that we had. We started out small there. We've got a 5,000 square foot showroom in Springfield. We bought that property as well. That was success. We have a formula. We do things the same way everywhere. And we feel like that formula kind of sets us apart. And then we had set plans to expand into the Champaign, Illinois market. And those plans had been put into motion before the pandemic. By the time the pandemic came around, we were 95% down the road of opening a store in Champaign. We had found the property, we had purchased the property, and it was either we just simply had to go forward. There was no going back at that time. So we have uh, roughly 17,500 square feet in Champaign. So the reason that expansion is, is in our business plan and really in our passion is because we want to be the best pro shops of hot tubs. In other words, we want to offer the customer an over-the-top retail experience when they come in. My philosophy going forward is that we want there to be a hot tub on every patio, just like there's a car in every garage. As an American, you should have a hot tub on your patio. So that's our long-term plan. I want to hear more about the fire because it sounds like that was a pretty uh, pivotal moment in your story and also in some of your, your plans to grow. So what happened with that? Yeah, basically June 30th of 2018. And for reference, that was also right about the time that the the Springfield store was opening. So we were kind of had that going on. And for those not familiar with the geography, Springfield's two and a half or so hours away from Terre Haute. So we were making a lot of trips back and forth. And on uh, Saturday, June 30th, 2018, we were all in the store in Terre Haute and early afternoon, smelled something kind of funny looked around, didn't really see anything. And then we were, we were sitting in the office and all of a sudden the lights went out and it was a hot day. So we thought, well, you know, all the air conditioners running probably tripped a breaker or something. So I went over into the part of the building where the circuit breaker panel is. And by that point, the fire had progressed in the attic to the point that there was water coming through the ceiling. It had melted through the water lines and there was water coming through already and, and obviously had burnt through wiring to the point that it had tripped the breakers to make the lights shut off and things like that and started to have some smoke. So it was, there were customers in the store. We were in the store. Like I said, it was a two o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, went and alerted the customers, got them out. Dad called 911. I grabbed a fire extinguisher and started toward the attic, but just got my head in the attic and decided this is bigger than me. So we all got out, totally no problem, no close calls. We were all safe. Everything was fine. And the fire department got there quickly. It seemed like it took a long time to get the hoses hooked up, but you know they did their best. And um, I guess what, what kind of makes this story unique, a couple of unique things happened. One was that we uh, one of our wellness consultants had an appointment set for three o'clock for a gentleman to come in and write up a hot tub. So we're all standing out by the street watching the store burn. And this elderly gentleman walks up and he says, uh, I have an appointment with Joe. 
And uh, I said, I'll go get them. So we we gathered up a sales contract and, and he wrote a deal in the street while the building was on fire. So that was fun. The other thing I guess that was kind of unique was that we had for about a year and a half prior to that, we'd been working with a gentleman that I actually graduated high school with who was in marketing. And we had really built up our marketing presence over that year and a half and become really marketing minded. And so the first thing that came to my mind was to call Dave, our marketing guy and say, Hey, the building's on fire. You probably ought to get down here. We need to have a fire sale. So he, he only lived a couple of miles away. He came down with the camera. We were Facebook live while the flames were coming out of the building. The news got there. We, you know, I did interviews with the news while the building was on fire. So that was a lot of free publicity. People definitely comment and like and share on Facebook posts about a building fire. So that was cool. Like I said, it was a Saturday afternoon. They got the fire put out. All that happened. Everybody was gone. We closed it up and we went home. We're, we're closed on Sundays. So we went home that night. And I tell people, as bad as having a store at your business is, can't imagine having a home fire because at the end of the day, we went home, right? We slept in our beds. Our families were there. It was, you can just kind of get through the rest. So we had a normal Sunday. We went to church. We had dinner. Everything was normal. Uh, Monday morning, we came into the store. We kind of assessed our situation. We, I believe there was one tub that was sold that we were not able to deliver immediately. We did deliveries on Monday. We had one tub that was sold that was on the floor and therefore part of the insurance claim, so to speak, that we reordered for the customer. Other than that, everything was in the offsite warehouse. Like I said, we delivered Monday morning. We moved kind of retail product, chemicals, things like that over to a space we had leased across the street. We were open for business Tuesday morning to take care of water care products and things like that. So then obviously you just start the process of sifting through the, the situation. And we had an appointment with the insurance company adjuster set for 11 a.m. on Monday. When we got to the store at about 9.30, there was a gentleman there already. And uh, he was with a company that we didn't, we had no idea this sort of thing existed. He introduced himself. He, ex he represented a company that is called a public adjuster. Basically, that company has all the resources needed to handle a large insurance claim. So they have a gentleman that's in charge of your case that used to be an insurance adjuster. So he understands how that works. And they have forensic accountants and they have contents people and they have building construction people. And uh, I say all that to say, if this is might be the most helpful thing we talk about in this podcast, we had no idea when we signed the contract, whether this was a scam or not. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, if you ever have a disaster in your business, by all means, call a public adjuster, find a reputable company with good reviews and everything. But that is a lifesaver. You do not have the knowledge or the resources or the time to deal with an insurance company. They're nice people, but it's their job to represent them. It's your job to represent you. And you just don't know what you need to know. You don't know what you don't know. And you just can't do it. So hire a public adjuster. That's my word of advice. Yeah, wow. you can't run a company and keep it going and do everything that you need to do to satisfy the insurance company. And we did not ever plan on just stopping and going home and waiting for the insurance claim to get settled. We continued from that Monday and we'd never closed. That's the reason that that public adjuster was a lifesaver. If you decide, well, I'm just gonna go home, then yeah, maybe you've got the time to do all that stuff. But uh, if you're trying to actively run a business and serve your customers and keep going, you just simply can't do that. 
I can see how that would be a huge benefit. When I was in college, I was moving and my car was stolen with like all of my stuff in it. <laughs> and even that was just a huge amount of time going back and forth and trying to remember all the items that were actually in the car and all of the things. And it was a lot just for, you know, a college student's possessions in a car. You know, I can't imagine going through it with a business. That sounds like it would be a huge benefit and a huge help. It's kind of one of the things you always joke about. You're you're in kind of a, you know, an old building that doesn't exactly suit your needs. You've got a bunch of old inventory sitting around and you think, boy, it'd be nice if this thing would just burn. Right. You know, and we could claim it. It's not that nice. <laughs> no, no. That's one of those things you think in your head. And then the reality of it is a huge yeah. hassle. <laughs> it, it is. But it, in reality, it really was, again, just one of those things that it's a challenge, but really in the end, it had a, a huge positive impact on our company as a whole, certainly in our year, because we did indeed have a fire sale. We put a good sized tent up in the parking lot in front of the burnt out building. We put whatever hot tubs we could gather up under that tent and we had a blowout and we spent a lot of money on advertising and we drove a lot of people into that tent and we set records. You know, we, we had the best months we had ever had up to that point under that tent. And we had people that started working for us in sales that several months later, they said, wow, it's, it's pretty cool to be able to show a hot tub with water in it. We, we were under a tent. There was no electricity on that lot. Obviously we couldn't fill them and run them. You know, we were just scrapping by, but it, I mean, it was like having a, a big offsite sale every day. I've told people it kind of bailed our year out, you know, up through June, we, you know, our, our numbers weren't where we really wanted them to be. And, and then by the end of the year, we'd set ourselves a, a new record. So it helped us in that way. And then of course, as, as Earl mentioned, you know, with the expansion into this property that we were able to get into, that's long-term kind of infrastructural type change. So it was pretty good. It's it, everybody responds to things differently. You know, I think for us, it was just sort of a challenge slash opportunity. I feel like any fires I've heard about before in the industry are just natural disasters in general. A lot of that stuff is always off hours. It seems to happen overnight. You get that call in the middle of the night, Hey, this is on fire. This is happening. But I can't imagine actually being in the building and the adrenaline and your blood <laughs> pumping and all of that, that had to have been, I mean, obviously everyone was okay and, and it worked out for the best, I guess, but, <laughs> but that had to have just been, I mean, a little terrifying, right? Yeah. It was a little terrifying for for me, for, well, for all of us, really. I mean, anybody would react that way. You know, my biggest concern was that everybody was out. You know, I'd called 911. I came out of my office. I tried to grab a couple of things that I thought would I'd really want to have. I couldn't, I didn't know where Josh was. So one of my sales associates was there in the front showroom. And I just said, where's Josh? And he said, well, I think I saw him with a fire extinguisher. Right. So it's like, oh my God. But then he reappeared very quickly. I thought I was going to have to go up in the smoke filled attic and try to drag him out of there. You know, he's up there trying to fight this fire, but he reappeared and that was a gigantic relief. There's not too many people that would stand in the parking lot watching the store burn and call your marketing guy and say, hey, you got to get down here. We need to have a fire sale. <laughs> okay. So that's but, definitely, uh, that definitely would not have been my reaction. <laughs> right. But it worked for the best. You might think that, well, we're a little bit cold and unfeeling, maybe. You know, how could you possibly be thinking about that while your building's on fire? But I guess that's who we are. I grew up in the Midwest. I know your ilk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> it's not about being cold, it's about moving on. And, you know, you just buck up and deal with it. <laughs> yep. 
And we are passionate about hot tubbing. Obviously, once you know everybody's safe, the rest, you know, it's just a building. And now we've got to figure out at that time, you know, you have no idea. I mean, you definitely have to figure out how do you stay in business and and hope to make the, the best of it. But I think it comes from a passion for what we do. We truly believe we make people's lives better with hot tubbing and the more people that we can do that for the better. And, you know, I guess what I would call a marketing mindset. I've gotten to the point where, you know, I'm just always kind of thinking about our marketing and how we can be more effective and, and how we can provide the best information and the best opportunities for people to get into hot water. So it sounds like you didn't lose a ton of inventory in the fire. Was the building a total loss then? Did you have to start from scratch there? I'm sorry if you already said that and I lost no. it in the drama. <laughs> right. Unfortunately, it was not a total loss. That would have simplified the claim a lot, right? Because then it's just like you get a quote to rebuild it and they pay you that amount. Rather, it's more like we could probably save that brick right there, right? I mean, that's kind of how the insurance company thinks. Like we can scrub this brick off and put it back. So the building was not a total loss. We did end up demolishing it for various different reasons. It didn't suit our needs. The other interesting thing is that any product that was in that building was written off by the insurance, whether it was anywhere near the fire or had gotten wet or whatever, didn't really matter because of the smoke. Essentially, smoke is acidic and it, they are not willing to take the chance that something, some electronic part somewhere has gotten damaged and it's going to fail a year down the road and cause problems. So that inventory was written off, but we were fortunate in that at that time we were warehousing offsite. So we, we had a significant number of hot tubs. Uh, oh, over that's there great. Yeah. Earl gave us the background on the business, but when did you start working for sure. him and, and in the business? We didn't get that part of the story. Yeah. 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 Like dad mentioned, he started the business in 1998. I would have been what, about 14 at the time. So I guess you could kind of say I grew up in it, right? By the time, you know, the hot tubs came around, you know, I was, you know, an older teenager. I kind of, kind of started just helping out on the weekends. You know, I would, I would definitely go some and help with service and things like that. And then I started helping with sales on, on the weekends up until I was about uh, 22, 23, I was employed elsewhere and I would come in and help on the, on Saturdays and stuff like that. And then it got to the point where basically they were just busy enough that it, you know, Earl was doing most all of the selling himself. And then I remember there was one week when one of our service techs who just absolutely despises sales accidentally stumbled into like three or four hot tub sales that week, right? Because there were just enough people around that wanted somebody to take their order that he had to write them up. And, and so we kind of decided, well, that, that probably means it's time for me to go ahead and come on board full time. So uh, that was in 2007. I started working full time. So yeah, just a baby, right? Just, just kind of grew up into it. People ask, how'd you get in the hot tub business? And I said, the same way as everybody else, totally by accident. That is everybody's, everybody's <laughs> story. Totally by accident and only for a little while. So how long were you guys out of a building? I mean, how long were you selling pretty much out of a tent and having mm -hmm. just kind of one giant offsite <laughs> event? Right. And kind also, I mean, you've got... I mean, you're in Indiana. It's not like you've got, you know, 70, 80 degree weather all year long to deal with. You nailed it. Yeah, it was definitely hot for the first couple of few months, right? We're talking July, August. So there were 100 degree days for sure. 
there were days where the parking lot flooded. We had water up six inches on the tubs. Fortunately, they were ones that had been written off by the insurance anyway, so it didn't matter. So yeah, there was that. And then of course you start to think about it turning cold, right? Because it does get cold here too. And things were going well enough on, you know, with the parking lot tent that I thought, boy, I'd, I really hate to give this up. So I started checking on heated tents. If there was somebody who could provide us a heated tent. And I found a company that could do that. They said, well, you would have to heat it all the time. It'd have to be heated overnight because if it were to snow on the tent, it would collapse. And we really can't even begin to guess how much propane you would use to heat this tent, just so you know. But we can rent you the tent for five months for $80,000. And I thought, I don't think I even need to bother to ask the insurance company if they're willing to give us $12,000 a month to keep being in a tent when obviously there are other spaces available. So at that point, we actually called the gentleman that owned this former HH Gregg building. He was willing to lease it to us on a month to month basis to get us through the winter. And that's kind of how we got our feet in the door here. And then we're eventually able to make a deal to purchase it. Did you find that the tent sales and selling in that environment was a lot different than having people in the showroom? I mean, do you feel like it made you better salespeople or, I mean, the publicity from the fire, did that just kind of launch things for you? What was that like? Cause it's, you know, under a tent, that's, that's a whole different feeling than having people walk into your showroom and getting that full experience of the retail that you want them to have. I will tell you this. If people think there's a disaster and they think that they can get a deal, they will come. And that had a lot to do with it. I think now, yes, obviously it changed the retail experience. You know, you could not go and stick your hand in a nice warm hot tub and feel the jets. We offered wet testing, of course, and we provided even, we had disposable swimwear that people could change into, you know, if they came in and they weren't planning on doing a wet test, but they decided they wanted to, we had disposable swimwear that they could change into. Well, we couldn't do that any longer under a tent, obviously. Number one, we had, we had very good, strong salespeople. They knew how to work with our customers. Again, the call to action of, Hey, you know, we've got a fire here and we've got hot tubs coming in because, you know, we did, we were getting truckloads of hot tubs that, you know, we was probably getting a truckload a week that we had to sell. There's only so much warehouse space. So yeah, we were getting hot tubs and we need to sell them and we didn't have a showroom to put them in. So that was the messaging people hear fire sale and they equate deal and here they come. It is so interesting how you can take something that could be devastating to a business and really find ways to turn it into a positive. And it just sounds like you guys had the right attitude when it came to it. You know, I'm sure there was a, a little bit of a mourning period and you do feel those emotions as well, but it sounds like you really just said, all right, well, this is our next step and we're going to, we're going to go for it. The mourning period came later because initially you're in survival mode because none of us here are wealthy beyond, you know, I mean, we can't quit working. I'm not independently wealthy. So it's survival mode. We've got families to feed and bills to pay and employees to keep around. And, you know, you can't just tell a whole bunch of people to go home and we'll let you know when you can come back to work. So we take that responsibility pretty seriously. It's, we've never really been seasonal as far as, okay, you guys can work, you know, March through September, and then you're going to have to go home. You know, we're not that type of operation. So uh, really survival. And then as things go on and the insurance company starts giving you pushback and 
you're having a difficult time of finding contractors that want to talk to you about rebuilding. And then the ones that do, you find out that what you need to build is way more than what you ever expected and way more than what the insurance company paid you and all of that. So reality eventually sinks in and you just kind of keep trudging along and doing what you got to do every day until solutions present themselves. You know, this building, like Josh said, the story behind this building is a long one. And I know that we don't have time today to talk about it, but it is an amazing story. I believe that it was the plan all along to put us into a situation where we were able to have this type of facility available to us at an amount of money that made sense was providential. I mean, that's a huge swing. I feel like going from, what was it, 6,000 square feet to this H.H. Gregg old building, which was how, how many square feet is this one? Uh, it's a total of 33,000. I mean, that's a pretty good size hot tub store in any market. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you mentioned you wanted to be the Bass Pro Shop of hot tubs. And is this, had that always been your vision or was it not until you moved into this giant building well, that you started to see the potential? It was before we moved into this, but it was not from the beginning. I had no idea about hot tubs in the beginning, you know. I sold like 25 hot tubs a year the first year, I think. And that amazed me that that many people would want to buy one, to be honest with you. But what happened, the way I got the vision of being the Bass Pro Shops, I could, I'll try to abbreviate this. I was watching a YouTube video one day and it was in the old store and they were talking about Bass Pro. For those of you that are familiar with Bass Pro, they have a winter wonderland every year. And they start that around Christmas time, you know, probably sometime before Thanksgiving and runs through after Christmas. And this winter wonderland is just exactly what it says. It's fantastic. They have Santa Claus. They have, you know, kids making cookies and making crafts. And it's just fantastic. And there's no charge for any of it. And they had a lady on there interviewing her, a customer that was there. She had driven 200 miles with her kids to go to this particular Bass Pro Shop. And her comment was that, just look around. I just absolutely love Bass Pro. They do all of this and they expect nothing in return. That immediately being in retail, that immediately triggered my response. That is fantastic marketing. If you can do that and you can get people to walk through your door and they don't even realize that you're doing it to get them to walk through your door for the purpose of buying something, that's a stroke of brilliance. That's how I got the vision of, hey, I want to be that kind of retailer. So that's the vision going forward for Backyard Leisures. We're, we're working toward that. We have what we consider to be world-class mood room that are being developed both here in Terre Haute and in our champagne store. Going to be a customer experience. You're going to walk into the mood room and it's going to be your backyard. There's the facade of, a, of the rear of a house on one wall. It looks real. You wouldn't know that it wasn't a house if you didn't know that it was just a facade. We have a she shed that we constructed in there to be a changing room. We have a projection wall. One wall is projection and it's a 11 foot tall by 30 foot wide wall. We'll be able to project stock images on that wall as well as taking images that our customers bring in on their phones and be able to project their backyard on that wall. So when they're sitting in a hot tub, 
in that mood room. And we have a starry night interactive ceiling. Basically, it's computer controlled and you can control various different aspects of this starry night ceiling. So the objective is when they walk in that mood room, they're in their backyard sitting in a hot tub looking at their backyard underneath a starry night sky. That sounds pretty amazing. Is this already done? I mean, can people come in and see well, it and experience or part part way done? <laughs> it's almost done. Okay. okay it's almost okay. done. We're still trying to get people to tell us how we're going to get this projection to work the way we need it to work. The starry night ceiling is in, the, the facade of the house is in. We've got a couple of hot tubs in there right now. One of them is hot and full and running. The main thing that we've got left to do is to tackle and get solutions for the projection system that we need because we want it to be as lifelike as possible. Again, we're trying to recreate a Disney-type experience. Of course, we don't have Disney's budget, and we don't have Disney's Imagineers on payroll, right? So, you know, but but we'll get there, and it'll get done, and, and when that happens, we plan on, of course, making that a big splash, marketing it, and inviting people to come in and experience it, and then... It sounds pretty amazing. And I've definitely gone to a Bass Pro Shop or a Cabela's, not because I needed something, but because they're kind of just fun to walk around in and see, you know, they've got fish floating around and we've taken our kids in to see Santa there and do the whole thing. And so I can definitely see how that could be a really fun destination for people just to kill a Saturday afternoon. Let's go down to Backyard Leisure and see what they got going on. What other products do you guys have on the floor to help fill in that? Are you only selling hot tubs or what else do you provide? to help kind of create that scene and and fill 30,000 square feet. (laughs) Hot tubs is absolutely our primary business. We have done in the past and will continue to do some outdoor furniture, some grills. Uh, We've had a fair amount of success with gas log fireplaces and swing sets are really easy to sell. You know, I'm so glad you said that because in an upcoming issue of the magazine, I said to one of our editors the other day, we've never talked about swing sets before. We should talk about swing sets. So great. Well, so now I have a lot of questions about the pandemic and what that was like, because as we know, obviously lead times are crazy. It's hard to get hot tubs and you guys have some pretty big showrooms to fill and also opened up a new showroom in the middle of the pandemic and in the midst of these lead times being insanely long. So I guess let's talk about the new store. And, you know, you said you, you know, you'd already signed off and that was rolling before the pandemic started. How were you able to get that store open and get product on the floor and start making it successful in the midst of everything else that happened in 2020? I'll start off by saying I wouldn't advise it necessarily. (laughs) But like Earl said, we were committed. I mean, we purchased a, a large, relatively expensive building and it needed to start making money. So I guess the probably the only real upside was that obviously demand was high, which anytime you're going into a new market, that's kind of a problem. In our experience, if there hasn't been a strong dealer in that market, nobody's been telling these people that they need to have a hot tub. That kind of falls on on the viewers to do. So getting your wheels under you initially can be challenging until you have time to tell everybody why they need a hot tub. So the increased demand helped in that before the store was open, we did some parking lot sales they're in the parking lot of the new building and had just immediate sales. I mean, people just, we were just there on Friday and Saturday and sold multiple dozens of hot tubs just with a few in the parking lot 
just probably primarily because of the pent up demand, you know, that the pandemic had created. To your point, stocking the floor was very challenging. And to this point, we never really have gotten a full showroom floor over there. It's of that 17,000 some square feet, about a little over 12 of it is showroom. And, and when there's five tubs on the floor, it does not look good. But everybody, you know, I mean, people obviously understand. And frankly, if you've got five hot tubs on the floor, there's a good chance you've got five more than anybody else right now. So like I said, it's it's been challenging. I wouldn't I wouldn't advise it. You know, some I've heard of dealers that really kind of protected their floor models and they didn't sell floor models so that they have something to show. I don't know. I guess we're too greedy. I can't bring myself to not sell somebody a hot tub if they want to buy it. So we we never have done that. We've always sold whatever. You know, if somebody's here and ready to write their check, we go ahead and sell it. <laughs> I don't really know how people have the discipline to do that, yeah. I guess, for <laughs> yeah, lack of right. a better word. I'm with you. I feel it would be really hard to say, yeah. well, I can't sell you this one, but you need to wait 52 mm, weeks and then right. I'll bring yeah. you a hot tub. That's pretty rough. Right. I guess we're kind of bird in the hand kind of guys. So, you know, yeah, we we haven't done that. So we look forward to the day where we can have nice big bustling showrooms anymore. In the meantime, we're just doing our best. And of course we, you know, sometimes we are at least able maybe to show tubs that are sold, but not delivered yet and things like that. So there's a fair amount of shuffling that goes on between, you know, three stores that are separated by three hours, you know, moving hot tubs here, there, and yonder, depending on where they're sitting and where the customer lives and things. But just like anything else, you take it you take it as it comes and do your best. Have we ever experienced anything, I feel like, more out of our control? Maybe you have with the fire no. but, uh, <laughs> right. than, than this pandemic. I mean, there's just you just you just don't have any control. There's nothing you can do to right. fix these problems on your own. It's a you know a global supply chain issue. So when the pandemic struck, we remained open. We continued, and we were fortunate because unlike many in the industry, we never did use just-in-time inventory. We always had warehouses, and at any given time between the store floors and the warehouse at that time, we would probably have 150 hot tubs in inventory. So initially, we had inventory to carry us through for a month or so, you know, and then we were deemed essential. Our industry was deemed essential by CDC and Homeland Security. We immediately just knew that we were going to have to do business a different way. We were going to have to be more ready to deal virtually with people. We were going to have to be able to sell a hot tub on the computer without them ever being in the store or seeing it or touching it. And we did that. We battled to stay open. There were elements that uh, would like to have seen us close our store. And we were able to take the steps necessary to be able to stay open through the entire time. We didn't close for one day. So as our inventory started to go down, of course, as we sold hot tubs and demand started to increase and manufacturing, of course, shut down in California, that's where our hot tubs are made. We just simply continued to build truckloads that we knew we were going to need to order. And as soon as manufacturing was able to open back up on a limited basis, we immediately submitted orders for 600 hot tubs. And then as lead times got farther and farther out, and we were advised that our lead time by the middle part of July, lead times were non-existent. Basically, they were sold out of production capacity all the way through 2021. So at that time, we ordered, by the end of July, we had ordered an additional 1,200 hot tubs. 
So by the end of July of 2020, we had 1,800 hot tubs that we had placed on order. And we are getting them. We're receiving them. The manufacturer is doing the best that they can with social distancing things in place and all of that. And of course, increased demand. But we're fortunate in that we did have inventory to begin with. We did have the size and the ability to order 1,800 hot tubs in advance. And our manufacturers working with us as best they can to help fill those orders as quickly as possible. That's kind of the survival story again. You go into survival mode <laughs> and you say, okay, we got to stay in business, right? We can't close. We've, we've now got 25 people on dependent on us to come to work every day. So, right. you know, we've got to keep going. So, you know, we, we're just, we're blessed with, with our partnership with our manufacturer. They're the best that that we've ever experienced. We should just give them a plug. You carry Watkins brands. I see lots of Caldera awards behind you. <laughs> right. Yeah, we sell uh, we sell Hospring, Caldera, their uh, Rotomold brands, Free Flow and Fantasy, and then also of course the Endless Pool Fitness Systems we carry. We have the entire Watkins line. So it's pretty fascinating to me that you guys already were not doing the just-in-time ordering. There are very few dealers in the country that operate that way. I mean, there's a lot more who do now. (laughs) I think nobody is operating that way anymore. But that's, that's interesting because since the recession, really, that has not been people's strategy. You know, they try to carry as little inventory as possible because manufacturers have gotten so good at getting people product in a pretty sure. reasonable amount of time. And so, so that's really interesting. That was your strategy to begin with. Did you guys do it that way? Because you, one, had the space to put out that many hot tubs and store that many hot tubs? Or is it partly your location too? Because I imagine for you to be getting truckloads and truckloads of hot tubs, it's going to be a little different than some of the other areas of the country. In normal times, we could order a truckload of hot tubs and uh, and normal turnaround would have been three to four weeks. Now, as far as I'm concerned, three to four weeks is too long to ask somebody to wait to get a hot tub. Many times it is that long because the customer has something to do to prepare for it. But I always felt that it was important that we have inventory that's available for next day delivery if possible. And I understand the philosophy behind just-in-time and it saves money on floor plan interest. Normally you can run more efficiently that way from a customer service standpoint and from in the event of something happening like did happen, We just felt it put us in a stronger position to be able to serve our customers better by having inventory on hand. I don't know. Obviously, I've already shared the extent of my knowledge on Terre Haute. (laughs) Yeah. But you guys, I mean, these are these are smaller markets. These are really large stores in you know, a market that is not as large as some of these others there, you see kind of more of the superstore models. I guess I'm just curious how that's sustainable with, I don't know, how, how big is Terre Haute? I should probably have looked this up beforehand. Terre Haute City is right around 60,000. Oh, it's even smaller than I thought. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Terre Haute is, is the smallest of our three markets, actually. Okay. Yeah, um, okay. Springfield's almost 120 and and uh, Champaign-Urbana is a little bit bigger than that. I mean, this is kind of my wheelhouse because the where I live, it's about 100,000. You know, where I grew up was much smaller. That's just an interesting strategy. So are you guys really drawing in people from just all over to come in? I mean, you know, when I grew up, we would drive two hours to go to a mall and we were perfectly mm-hmm. happy to do that. Is that the kind right. of thing that you are you are attracting? That is kind of true. Each of the towns, Terre Haute is definitely the regional shopping 
center for, for the area. I would say, you know, pretty easily 50 miles. People come to Terre Haute to do their big shopping. And then Springfield and Champaign. Champaign certainly is, some people call it the downstate Chicago. You know, people kind of come to Champaign because it has, you know, more stores and things like that. And then Springfield, of course, is the state capital. You know, you've got some things going on there. So, I mean, that is important. I guess we've we've had people tell us, you know, the the primary determining factor with regards to how many hot tubs are sold in the market is the operator. Much less to do with the size of the town or the demographics or the income levels or anything like that. It's mostly the guy there trying to sell hot tubs. And, you know, obviously somewhere there is a limit. You know, we we're probably not going to sell 60,000 a year to a town of 60,000 people, but hot tubs are still so niche. You know, we're still still have such a low penetration rate, even in a town of this size. I just I don't know that you could ever outsell the size of the market because, you know, by the time you're selling five thousand a year, everybody else's are 10 years old and they need to trade them in anyway. Right. So it's like, you know, I think you could just keep going indefinitely, even in a town of this size, just because there are so many patios that don't have hot tubs on them yet. So we want to draw. We do want to be an experience that people are willing to drive for. We also feel like we can serve our people right here better with a larger, you know, more experiential retail setup. We think it's plenty big enough. A thousand hot tubs a year out of a out of one store is a lot. And that's still a tiny fraction of how many households there are. So I think there's plenty of room. How big is your service area? Do you have a cap? I mean, are you all over the state of Indiana and Illinois? I mean, how far are you guys going on a on a daily basis to right. deliver and take care of hot tubs? Right now, our service and delivery guys do have a pretty tough job because basically right now, all of our service and deliveries do happen out of Terre Haute. So just kind of a normal radius, if you go to Springfield, Illinois, plus, you know, whatever, 40, 50 miles, they might be going three plus hours to their first delivery of the day. And then they typically do two and then drive back. So they do have some, some pretty long days. That obviously, as the Illinois part of the business grows, you know, with the addition of Champagne, we'll have people stationed over there and, and we'll cut that back a little bit. We're willing to do crazy things, but we'll go pretty much anywhere as long as it makes sense. And as long as we're not stepping on anybody's toes, and as long as we feel like we can service the customer, you know, if we can give them the experience they need, then we don't turn much away. When you're dealing in, you know, quote unquote, smaller, smaller towns, I feel like there's also a different expectation of what's an acceptable amount to drive and Mm -hmm. what they expect out of you as far as customer service and taking care of them. And so, yeah, I I can't imagine that you would be able to turn down too many people because I feel like, feel like word would get around. (laughs) Yeah. Right. To your point, if we were in Metro Chicago, right. 20 miles takes two hours, right? I mean, so there is a a different paradigm when you can basically figure that your average speed is going to be 50 miles an hour to go pretty much anywhere you want to go as compared to trying to go from one side of Chicago to the other. So, So that helps, I guess, from a mileage standpoint. If we were in a big metro, we'd probably have to rethink that. In this industry, obviously, you talk to a lot of family businesses. Some are pretty efficient, functional teams, some not so much. (laughs) So I'm curious what it's like for you guys working as a father-son team. Are there other people in the family who work in the business as well? How do you manage that part of it? Because, you know, you got to work together and then presumably spend Christmas together as well. Have you ever seen American Chopper? Yeah, I have actually. Okay. I feel well, like that's, we... a bla- that's a blast from a past. <laughs> I haven't thought about that show in a long time. <laughs> I know. Well, the good news is, is that we are not American Chopper. 
Josh is primarily, he will one day, well, he is now the face of Backyard Leisure on television and everything else, but he is the heir apparent. My oldest child, our daughter, she does our bill paying and accounts receivable and payable and stuff like that. Everybody else is basically family, but they're not blood. (laughs) Does that make sense? So family-wise, it's Josh and I and my daughter, Angela. And then we do have a young woman that was very good friends with my oldest granddaughter, and uh, she works for us. And she happens to call me grandpa too. So we have that. But for me, to be a little more serious here, many things that we have done and are doing and will do would have been impossible had it not been for Josh's efforts and his, I would not have been the guy standing in the parking lot calling our marketing guy saying we have to have a fire sale. We would not be where we are today had it not been for him. And we will not be where we are going to be in the future if he wasn't here. I would say likewise. Yeah, obviously sounds weird to say that we wouldn't be where we are today without the owner of the, of the company. It kind of goes without saying, (laughs) but what I tell people about Earl is that you would be surprised for a a gentleman of somewhat advanced age, uh, that uh, he's one of the more energetic people that I know for better or worse. Also pretty progressive from a business standpoint. That's the best word I can come up with is progressive. He He's still an idea man. He comes up with crazy things and says, figure out how to do it. And he's looking for ways to have competitive advantage and to have a unique selling proposition. It's going to someday be rather difficult to imagine doing this business without him, especially at the same level. So he's still very much a driving force in this business. And obviously, uh, I respect him a lot and love him. And and, uh, (laughs) hey, he said, I love you. He said he hasn't said that to me since he was five. Yeah, right. Every time we get off the phone, come on, (laughs) which is several times a day. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, it's, it is, it is interesting. And, and other people notice, you know, I I had mentioned that we work with a a marketing guy that's my age. We, we graduated high school together. We're both about 36 and, you know, he's, he's attracted to our business because of the, the kind of guy that, that dad is that he knows what he's doing and he's, energetic and passionate about what he does and competitive and and always looking for new and better ways to do things. You know, our industry has for years and years underestimated the potential. And truly, this is more than a catchphrase. My goal is to have a hot tub onto every patio. The benefits, if we truly believe that hot tubbing provides the wellness benefits that we all say we do, then it is our responsibility to do everything that we can to make sure that as many people as possible can experience that hot water immersion, massage therapy, the wellness benefits that go along with being in a hot tub every day. People think nothing about spending sixty or eighty thousand dollars on a car. They think nothing about going out and spending twenty-five thousand to a half a million dollars on an RV. The hot tub industry has always underestimated itself and its value that it brings to society and the potential that it has. 
And I am determined to be a driving force in bringing that hot tub experience to literally every patio within our marketing areas. I'm so glad that you said that because I think especially after a year like 2020, where there are all of these constraints and other concerns and you know, it's just a crazy year to be in the hot tub business. I think it's easy to lose sight of why we're actually all here and why we enjoy what we do and, and why we do it. And that's such a good reminder that hot tubs really do change people's lives and bring them a lot of happiness and wellness and, and all of these things. And, you know, in the midst of running the day-to-day business, and especially, like I said, in this last year, it's really easy to lose sight of that. Yes, it is. And it really does change lives. I have one quick story I'd like to share with you. We had a couple come in, an older couple, I'd say probably late 40s, early 50s, maybe, come into our Springfield store and they purchased a hot tub. As usual, they gave us a deposit. You know, we take a deposit with every contract that we write. Oh, I don't know, maybe a week, 10 days later, my wellness consultant over there calls me and said that the lady had called and said, hey, I need to cancel that contract. My husband and I are going to get divorced. Now, this was literally days after they had been in the showroom together buying a hot tub. So again, it may be considered cold, but our contracts clearly state that there's no cancellations. All sales are final and deposits are not refunded. So I reached out to the lady and talked to her and explained, and I reached out to the husband and talked to him and explained. And so ultimately they decided they were going to go ahead and receive the hot tub. And then they would have to argue over who was going to get custody of it at the divorce. Now, what happened next was that she called about two months later and she asked for me and she said, I I want to thank you for not letting us cancel because it saved our marriage. I definitely have chills right now. I mean, I hear a lot of great stories about the things that a hot tub has done for people and you hear, oh, it's great for the family, but this actually saved a family. That's amazing. She called out of the blue to say that. Wasn't any prompting. We didn't call her or say, hey, you know, she just called out of the blue and said, hey, I got to thank you. You saved our marriage. This is why we do what we do. It's why we do what we do. And it's why we have the passion that we have and why we have the vision that we have that every human being that has a patio, if they've got a six by six foot square space in their backyard, they need to have some type of hot tub on it. That's what we're driving for. I mean, I think we need more of these stories in the hot tub industry. This is the kind of stuff that we need to be talking about more in the magazine and on our websites and just sharing the things that a hot tub has done for people because it can be a really a life-changing thing for the people who buy them and the people who sell them. That's right. I feel like I could talk to you guys for another couple of hours, but I imagine you have other work to do. But do you think you could finish up with the Spa Retailer 5? Sure. All right. So I don't know if you guys want to tag team or if you want to both answer the questions. I'm fine either way. The first one is, do you remember what your first sale was? The first hot tub or the first product, what you sold, who you sold it to, and how that process went? Okay, I'll just quickly say, and then I'll turn it over to Josh. The first product was not a hot tub. I shared that with you already. So the very first product that we sold in the backyard leisure home resort business was the gazebo to the 85-year-old man for his wife's Christmas. When we were still in the kind of two-car garage showroom stage of the business and I was working weekends, there was a hot tub that had been sitting there long enough that it had gotten a nickname. New hot tub. 
it had come to be called the old gray mare. It had kind of a, you know, it had like that sand colored shell and a, and a gray cabinet on it. And it had been there long enough that it had become called the old gray mare. So I don't remember how I did it, probably by sheer luck and a big discount. One Saturday, I sold that hot tub to some folks. And yeah, that was that was my first one. I love it when they get nicknames. <laughs> I do not. I don't love it. We don't love it. Yeah, we don't. I can understand that. But it, hey, it makes for a great story. What was your first real job? either of you or both of you? Well, my first real job was I was a uh, retail clerk in a a discount department store. Of course, that was a long time ago. That would have been 1975, probably, was my first real job. Eventually got to be a department manager and then left the retail business for quite a few years and eventually went into the insurance industry. And that was my primary career. But first real job, retail clerk, discount department store. So you've been I, in the retail game a, a long time then. Like I said, spent 25 years of my career in insurance sales. So first job was retail. So Josh's I, Backyard Leisure, was that your first real like W-2 paying position? I don't know if this counts as a real job, but I think that every single 14-year-old kid should have to detassel. Have you, are you familiar with detasseling? No, I I, I don't think I know what you're what you're talking about. Anybody from the Midwest knows what I'm talking about. So basically, if you're a kid that isn't old enough to have an actual job, for some reason, it's legal to make kids detassel. So detasseling is you have corn, rows of corn and for seed corn, you know what a tassel is right on the top of corn. It's the little. Yeah. Well, for seed corn, if you don't take the tassels off of the male rows, then it ruins the corn. I don't, I don't know anything about the genetics, but basically, and I don't know if this is still how they do it, but they've got these big kind of tractor things with like baskets on them that you ride in this basket between the rows and you try to pull all the tassels out of the top of the corn as fast as you can, because obviously the driver wants to drive faster. The gist of it is you're about 14 years old. It's about 105 degrees out. It's about 100% humidity and you're in a cornfield. So that, and corn scratches you and there's slimy stuff and you're, you might pass out. And yeah, so long story short, and of course you're doing it for minimum wage because you're 14 years old, right? I think it would be best for every 14 year old in the world to have to detassel for a summer because it, it makes most everything else pretty attractive. That sounds like a pretty intense first real job. And I mean, I grew up in North Dakota, but I guess we don't have enough corn for detasseling to, Maybe be, the other kind of corn to be a thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what would you say is the worst idea or the biggest flop that you ever brought into the business? This is my favorite question by far. We get the best answers for this one because there's usually a lot to choose from. Right. Well, I have to take responsibility for this one, and and it may surprise people to hear my answer. So to make the short version is pools. Pools was our biggest mistake. And obviously that may come as a surprise to a lot of your readers or listeners, because most people in the hot tub business are pool builders. We were not, right? We started on the hot tub side. As a young, foolish man, I thought that there was a lot of opportunity in the pool business. So I always was kind of pushing to do it. And finally... What tipped us over the edge was we had a hot tub customer that essentially told us, I'm putting in an in-ground pool next year. And if you guys will do it, you can do it. You've got the job, which was pretty silly because heck, how how do we know how to build a pool, right? So that tipped us over the edge. We spent the winter investigating, signed up with a fiberglass manufacturer, called her up, said, hey, we can sell you a pool. We pitched it. 
we sold it. We installed it. Everything actually went pretty good. And we thought, hey, this is not bad. And then like the next five years from 2012 to 2017 were spent basically deluding myself that it would get better, right? You know, selling them is fun, right? Big tickets. Actually installing them is, in my opinion, not that much fun. We, of course, dad and I are, are not construction guys per se, you know, I mean, we have some capabilities, but our job is to sell and to run the business. So, you know, we were more of more like managers and we, we had some good people that, that did good work. And obviously we had some other people that were pool builders, but everybody has rain and everybody has groundwater and everybody has customers that kind of go crazy when you start digging up their beautiful yard. And like I said, for the first three or four years, I thought we'll figure this out. You know, it'll get better. We'll have come across all of the crazy situations and know how to solve them and it'll be fine. And around the five year mark, dad and I were in the truck at like seven o'clock one morning. And I got a call that was like the third problem of the day with some pool job we were doing. And I basically said, I'm over it. And dad said, I was never under it. I never wanted to do this in the first place. So we started figuring out our way out of of the pool business, which was basically to sell more hot tubs. We have a pool magazine that we do separately from Spa Retailer because we always feel like the hot tub business and the pool business, there's a lot of people who do both, but they are two separately. There's really not a lot of overlap other than maybe service. It's a whole, it's a different selling process. I mean, pools, obviously you're doing construction, hot tubs, you're dropping them off and leaving. (laughs) I don't see a whole lot of overlap. And it sounds like you guys had to deal with that the hard way. (laughs) Yeah. To your point, it kind of goes back to what Earl was saying earlier about how the hot tub industry seems to have always kind of underestimated itself. You know, it's like 40 years ago, they thought, where are we going to sell these things? And, you know, rather than trying to build a dedicated dealer network, it was like, hey, we can stick these in the corner of a pool shop, right? As a result, you know, the whole industry is maybe just now getting to the point where it's kind of trying to come out on its own and get out from under the being the second fiddle in, you know, the vast majority of the retail outlets. You know, we do reader surveys and all of that. And I feel like a good portion of our readers, especially our loyal readers, they are hotshub only businesses. I mean, people, when they hear what I do, they kind of, you know, raise their eyebrows. Like, is there enough to talk about hot tubs to do a magazine <laughs> on just hot tubs? And the answer is absolutely. Right. <laughs> so on the flip side, what would you say is the best idea, the best thing that you guys have done for your business? Basically, the best thing that we did was when the hot spring dealership became available in Terre Haute, Indiana, the factory rep approached us. Prior to that, we were multi-branded. We carried four different brands. And the hot spring Which shall remain nameless. Yes, we that shall remain nameless. We carried four different brands. The hot spring rep approached us about becoming a hot spring dealer because the local dealer had closed the store in Terre Haute. Of course, having been a competitor, we knew how to sell other brands against hot spring. But Josh said, I think that we really need to give this some strong consideration because they are the number one brand in the world. And actually he said, you know, I I read spa retailer and they do articles on hot spring dealers across the nation. And there was one hot spring dealer in particular that had impressed him A major factor in becoming a hot spring dealer for us was that you had interviewed Alice Cunningham at Olympic, right? A legend in our business. And and I could tell, I thought, this lady seems happy to be a hot spring dealer. And that was 
pretty counter to our experience with all of the manufacturers we had dealt with in the past. So that was a big intangible when it came to the decision yeah. to join up with Hot Spring. I do talk to a lot of happy Hot Spring dealers. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to lie. And it was the best decision that we ever made. What we found was that Hot Springs is the number one brand for a reason, or Watkins Manufacturing. Let me, let me broaden it out and say Watkins is the number one hot tub manufacturer for a reason. And that is that they are faithful. They are faithful to their dealers. They're faithful to their customers, sometimes to a fault. They will do things for a customer that would never, ever be expected. As a matter of fact, our previous experience with the other manufacturers, they would look for ways not to have to do things to the point where we always had the philosophy that if you bought a new hot tub from us, that if something went wrong with that hot tub, regardless of what caused it, if there was any way at all we could fix it and not charge the customer, we were going to do it. So Watkins has that same philosophy. So it's been a good partnership for us and they've been a faithful partner to us. And that's the reason that we chose to go exclusively with their lines of uh, hot tubs. In 2020, a lot of people who were exclusive and loyal to their manufacturer found themselves having to go other places to get tubs just to, mm -hmm. you know, keep a steady supply coming in. But it sounds like for you, at least that that wasn't an option or not something that you thought about or wanted or had to do. So we, we did have to, what we would consider, you know, more of a temporary situation, but we did in order to fill demand, we did have to look for our best second option. You are not alone. So yeah. <laughs> to finish up, I already know that Earl was getting ideas from YouTube, but what have you been reading or listening to or watching to keep yourself entertained or to mm -hmm. learn new things? What are some of your favorites? To be quite honest with you, we normally get to work about 8, 8.30 in the morning. And many times I'm rolling in about 10, 10.30 at night. And so I will sit down in the recliner, eat a little bit of supper, warmed up in the microwave, and flip on the History Channel or Great American Country or something. Usually like to watch the lakefront bargain hunt or go RVing or you know, something like that. You're speaking my husband's language. He's all about those HGTV, <laughs> you know, spying on the waterfront shows. Well, that's what I do. And then I go to sleep. What I would have to say is my favorite book is the Bible. I mean, it's an oldie, but a goodie. As far as what I'm, what I'm doing right now for any kind of entertainment and somewhat business, I did recently watch Undercover Billionaire. So that's kind of a cool show. I don't know if you've You seen know what? It. That's another one that my husband had on when we were making dinner yesterday. So, you know, he's you guys are on the yep. same on the same Pretty entertainment cool. wavelength. That's kind of a cool show. And then as far as books, I'm not a huge reader, but I did I did set myself a reading goal a couple of years and and a couple of the year that I thought I need to read this more, you know, like probably every year. On the career side, classic Seller Be Sold by Grant Cardone, who is in the second season of, of Undercover Billionaire. Starts off kind of slow, but get through those first few chapters. There's some really good stuff in there. And he's not quite the egomaniac that he puts on, I don't think. He's, I think he's actually- Oh, that's interesting. I, I got to admit, I tried to listen to his podcast and I couldn't <laughs> quite, I couldn't quite yeah. do it. So maybe I need to read Grant yeah. Cardone instead yeah. of uh, listen. Yeah, definitely. I, like on Undercover Billionaire, my wife's like, yeah, I don't like that guy, but I think he's actually got a good heart. The other one that I thought I should read probably every year is an old book by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. So that's that's worth reading. Kind of food for thought can really make you think about, about yourself and your situation. So- That'd be my two recommendations. 
Well, Josh and Earl, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. This was a pleasure. I'm so glad I got the chance to talk to you and learn about your history and your business. And again, I feel like I've got about five story ideas out of this conversation. So thank you so much. <laughs> well, it's our honor. Thank you. It's our honor. All right, great. Well, thank you guys so much. Absolutely. We'll do it again. Spa Retailer Podcast is a production of Spa Retailer Magazine. Let us know what you think by leaving a review or emailing us at podcast at spa Thanks for listening.